Ghostly Thistle presents The Antique Shop Hello, welcome to the nightmare episode <laughs> Nightmare nightmare for me for editing because I'm going to ramble on for about an hour. A nightmare for you listening, me try to get a sentence out. <laughs> Fun all around, yay! I also might need to apologise for the audio quality because, you know when I said I was moving back at the beginning of the year? I'm not moving back to Scotland for various economic reasons. Everything is a bit too expensive at the minute. So I decided to stay down where I am at the minute because I'm I'm remote from my job anyway, so I didn't really need to move up there. We've had really bad weather for the last like two months, like a lot of rain. And I live in quite an old cottage and I rent it out. But there's been some quite severe water damage to it. So severe that my landlord wants to move me out so that they can repair it and then renovate it as well because the water damage has caused a lot of damage on the inside as well. So I am now having to move anyway, (laughs) which was quite ironic. So yes, I do apologise if there is any echo because I usually stand... (laughs) Here's soundproofing for an amateur, (laughs) if you want. I usually stand in front of my wardrobe So I don't really have like a wardrobe, it's more like a a clothes rail that's got like a shelf on the top. It's, yeah, I I didn't want to buy a wardrobe because it's quite a small place. And it's it's obviously full of clothes, so that kind of dampens the sound a wee bit, but all of the clothes are now in boxes, so it's a bit more echoey in here. I do apologise, it shouldn't, it didn't sound that bad when I did a mic test or a mic check earlier, but it it might be a bit bad, so I I do apologise for that. You forgive me, there's nothing I can do about it. Disclaimer's over. Welcome to the Reflections episode. I've called it a Reflection episode because it's not quite... It is a Q&A, but the Q&A is only a part of it. And I do have at least a, a nine-page essay here <laughs> before I even get to the questions. So, yeah, this is going to be fun, guys. Strap in. Get some tea, biscuits, because we're going to be here for a while. Probably my longest episode to date and it's just going to be me ranting. (laughs) Sounds like fun. Let's go to the start. Let's go to the origins of this wee podcast. I keep on referring to the last Q&A. Believe it or not, there was a QA and a about two years ago. I keep on referring to that and I do apologise because I took it off the feed because I didn't like that it cut the episodes. So the origins of this, this story, the origins of the antique shop. I've been writing since I was at least a teenager, so at least since I was about 13, 14, maybe even before that. I've been writing for a very, very long time, and I have lost things along the way because laptops are not infallible. <laughs> they crash, and back in the day, back back when I was a bairn, back in the olden times, backups were very clunky, there wasn't any such thing as a cloud drive at least not one I had access to when I was a, a child or a teenager. So I used to have to put them on like USBs and I never used to do it. So yeah, I've, I've lost a few things along the way. I still do have some things, but they are cringe. Like I don't even look at them now because they just make me hurt. 
<laughs> they're not they're that bad. They're your typical teenage shit, honestly. They're just the shit is probably the best. <laughs> shit is the best word for them. So yeah, I've been writing ever since I was like 13. So I've gotten a lot better at dating the stuff I write now. So I in the file name I'll actually put the day that I wrote it down in a Word document now. But I've only just recently started doing that in the last few years. So anything that I have from before, like maybe five, six years ago doesn't really have a date on it so I'm not quite sure when I actually created it. The reason that I remember the McElwraith statements when I first wrote that was because I was still going to university and I used to walk past this old school that is in one of the episodes in the McElwraith statements. So I must have been about 19 when I was writing that one, maybe about 20. The antique shop is inspired by an anime called Holic. It's a very old anime now. I never read the manga. I was more of an anime watcher when I was younger. And I stopped watching anime before I was 16. Which means these, the, the original antique shop, which nothing's changed all that much, to be honest, between the originals and this version. The characters are the same. The names are the same. I never really changed anything like that. But because I stopped watching anime by the time I was like 17... I I kind of feel like this was probably written before that age. So it was actually, I think this was actually written before the McElroy statements were. They're very, very short. The original ones are like two pages long. And I've got about 20 or 30 of them. And I have no idea where I was going with the original one. (laughs) Because I never wrote anything down back in the day, you know, back when I was that age. I wasn't as fastidious about writing everything down like see now if I have an idea I will write it down I'll write everything that comes into my head down I'll write the date I'll write what it's inspired by anything that comes to mind literally anything so the word documents I've got now for my stories now are like 10 pages long but back in the day I didn't do that I don't know why I suppose it's just learning isn't it you know when you're young and under 16 at least you know it just doesn't occur to you to do that kind of thing origins of the McElroy statements and the antique shop are a wee bit shrouded in not mystery but memory because my memory doesn't go back that far. I remember writing the originals. I don't remember what age I was. The antique shop was inspired, heavily inspired by the anime Holic because I was an anime person. I was never really a manga person. So yeah, when I started listening to audio fiction in 2019, no, 2018, just correct myself. Sorry, it's been a long time, guys. Anybody else Anybody else think that they've lost two years of their life? <laughs> and the very first podcast I ever listened, the fiction podcast I ever listened to was Limetown. Not very original, I know. But that started me off on a journey of listening to quite a lot of audio fiction. I started getting the idea in late 2018, why can't I do this? I've got tons of, of back catalogue. My back catalogue, as I said, spans to when I was about 13, 14. I've got tons of stuff that's just sitting there. You know, why can't I do anything with it? Let's see what works. Or let's see if anything works. And obviously the McElroy statements was the first. They were not called that. The original stories had no name. So I'm really bad at naming stuff. I think you can probably tell that by the, by the really unoriginal names for these podcasts. But yeah, I am really bad at naming things especially stories. Very few of my stories, even the completed ones, like the completed novels I have, have titles. The Antique Shop, I think it was always called The Antique Shop, to be honest. I think I, I, so, <laughs> I, I kept that. 
I had to do a lot more changes on the McAway statements, original stories, than I did this one. As I said earlier, I had about 20 to 30 tiny wee short stories, essentially, in this antique shop anthology. And for the the first 20 episodes of this podcast of the antique shop, they're essentially based on the original ones I wrote when I was younger. And it's only from episode like 21 onwards that everything's been original. I think someone emailed or messaged me recently saying that there was definitely a tonal shift after episode 20. And that's because episode 21 onwards are new stories that I have written from scratch, whereas 1 to 20 were based off of the original ones that I wrote back when I was uh, a bairn, essentially, which is probably why there's such a massive shift or such a noticeable shift in quality between the two of them, because I am not 16 anymore. (laughs) Thank God. Uh, So there's the origins, there's the beginnings, and let's go to the end. (laughs) The endings. The McAway Statements was a lot easier to end Um, But I think that's because I hadn't been doing it for that long. I think I... Was it 10 months? Was it six? I think it was like six months. I think the first McAvoy Statements was in May. And I released the finale in like December. So I hadn't been doing it for that long. So it was very... It was a a lot easier (laughs) to end the McAvoy Statements because it was shorter and I was kind of... I knew exactly where I was going. Um, Whereas with this one, I knew from at least episode 10 how I was how I was going to end the antique shop maybe a wee bit later but I always had two options written down so I, as I said because I write everything down I have this massive like oh it's like a 30 page document now it might be even bigger than that that's got like a summary of every episode and that was where the ending lived back when I wrote it and it was at the end of the document so I never really scrolled down so yeah I had two endings and they were kind of very similar to each other One was, I would term a bad ending, because I essentially killed the madams at the end of it. (laughs) Which was really cruel. And believe it or not, right up until I actually wrote episode 50, I was thinking, I think I might need to kill the madams off. I think they need to die. Not in a kind of murder way. Like, in a kind of, they're so old now. Like, Anora's like a few hundred years old. Norna was like 500 years old. And I was like, well, if they do become mortals, they are essentially going to die because they're they're old, they're too old. They're too old to be human. That so yeah, that was one of the endings. But I didn't really that, that was kind of the only thing I really had for that ending that I was kind of sure about was I was a bit like, yeah, the madams need to die. I just thought that was so bad. I hate endings like that. As much as it could as much as it might be realistic for the reasons that I've stated, I just thought it would be so mean. You know, these poor women have been like forced to be madams for hundreds of years and then they just die at the end. It just seems really cruel. I know these characters aren't real, but it just, I can't, I can't bring myself to abuse them more than is necessary. It just felt really unsatisfying, you know, for them to die at the end of it after all of that. After 50 episodes for them to die, I was like, people are going to kill me. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, so the, the alternate ending... I was originally going to have Madame Honora as a villain and I think the, that's the kind of problem as well with when I started was Honora was kind of meant to be the villain originally. I think she's the villain in the original stories to be quite honest. Oh yeah, fate wasn't in the original stories. That That's a, an addition. The, the concept of fate and not death. Death was in the original story. So Reed 
It was Reed. Oh, that was it. Here you go. Here's an alternate. Here's what happened in the original. So in the original, it was Reed that died and Maya made a deal with death to save him. Because I'd already hit him with a drunken driver and put him in hospital, I thought it might be a bit mean to also have him die. <laughs> so, so Finn got the brunt of that. Finn was the one that died, which I'm quite happy about how that turned out, actually. I'm actually very happy because it allowed me to explore Finn's character more. Because I kind of felt like Finn was really underdeveloped. And so killing him and bringing him back and Maya making a deal with death helped me, gave me an excuse to use him more, you know, because he was kind of never around. But killing him made him be around more. So yes, the original, in the very, very original stories, it was Reed that died. But Maya always made a deal with death. So death was in the originals, but fate wasn't. Madame Honora was essentially the villain in the original stories. But obviously things changed. Stories have a mind of their own. I don't know if anybody else kind of thinks this, if any other creator this happens to. And I know it sounds really weird because it comes from my head. So obviously, like, you would think that I had full control over it. But honestly, sometimes stories just have a mind of their own. They just do what they like. And sometimes it works out for the best. <laughs> In this case, it did. So that, that's why when Madame Honora was introduced at the beginning of this podcast, she was a bit more villainous. At least I kind of wrote her to be a bit more villainous. Because that's how she was written in the original stories. It's only when I started writing them from scratch, like putting my own ideas in and stuff and not just copying my young, younger self, that she started being a bit less evil or villainous or whatever. The alternate ending had Madame Minora as like the main villain and her main purpose was to get rid of the Madame Nornas because she didn't like that they existed. She wanted things to go back to when it was just the one Madame. Because obviously Madame Minora is the, the original. She was the original created by fate. And then Madame Norna was created to balance the bad things that she was doing out. The current Madame Honora kind of gets it into her head that she wants to be the only Madame. And that was her original arc, essentially, was that she was the main bad guy and her whole purpose was to get rid of Maya and Madame Norna. So I think the motivation that I had for that alternate ending was that it was like a revenge thing for Honora. Um, it was like a personal vendetta, but I, I, as I said, it's not a very developed ending. So that, that's how I write. I'll, I'll come to this later with my, like, my methodology. <laughs> oh God, tell me you're in science without telling me you're in science. Yeah, I will come to this later uh, when I talk more about my writing process, but I will write down a very vague, like, idea and then I will later go and kind of flesh it out. So yeah, that, that's why this ending is, maybe doesn't sound like it makes sense because I never went and developed it. I went and developed the ending that I actually, you actually heard. I don't really know when fate became the... Ugh, fate's not really a villain either, though. That's the thing. And that's what I really liked about this. And this is what I really like about stories. I really hate villains. I hate the concept of villains. I hate the concept of heroes. It's not that I hate them. I just think they're really boring. And that's what really, that's what maybe I don't like about the MCU either. Because obviously that's essentially all that we've had for the last 10 years <laughs> is comic books, like hero comic books being turned into films and television series and stuff. I just think that, and oh, here's some social commentary for me as well. I feel like because the world is becoming so polar, you know, you're either one or the other. There's never, there's no middle ground anymore. 
And it's the same in film and stuff. I just feel like it's very rare to ever actually find a bit of media where there's not like evil and versus good. I just kind of think that's really boring. So that's what I really liked about the antique shop or what I really, I like to write characters that are not good or evil or maybe they're kind of both. But I definitely don't like that kind of polar opposite thing. I think it's just kind of boring. But as I've gotten older, my characters have definitely become more morally questionable. <laughs> when I was thinking, you know, I suppose you could look at fate as a villain, but they're kind of not really a villain. It really depends on what your morals are in how you view fate, I suppose. Because I, for me, it's not really evil. It just happens. You know, fate's fate. It's its nature. It's, it's not really a good or a bad thing. It's just what happens sometimes. You could argue that fate's a bit of a dick, I suppose, because they've made two women, you know, give up their lives in order to do its job. As, as Maya says in the episode, you know, fate's lazy. It fobbed off its, its responsibilities onto mortals to do it for them. Um, so yeah, it, it really depends. Maybe I'm viewing this wrong, but here you go. Here's my take on it. Fate was never really meant to be a villain in a traditional sense. It doesn't have evil motivations. What it does isn't really wrong. Because bad things happening to people isn't necessarily wrong in itself either. And I think I've mentioned this in the episode where fate confronts Maya because she's been messing with fate. You know, that the whole concept of, yeah, well, bad things might happen now, but that doesn't mean that bad things are always going to happen. You know, sometimes bad things need to happen for good things to happen. Fate's not a villain, but it is the antagonist of the story because it's the one that's kind of forcing everyone into the positions that they're in. And obviously Maya doesn't like that. So the ending that you heard wasn't really solid until about episode 20. And then everything from episode 20 to, to 50 was essentially like the, the build-up. Especially the last 10 episodes. I definitely, definitely left your breadcrumbs to figure out what was going to happen. I think I, I think I rambled on enough about the ending. <laughs> Let's move on to characters. Our protagonist, Maya. So yes, Maya's name is original. That was what she was called in the original stories. So yeah, Maya is a lot more like me than I'd probably care to admit. <laughs> Yeah, I tried to make her quite different. Essentially, I tried not the opposite of me, but I did at least try to make her have different opinions. But as the years went on, I just got lazier. Don't get me wrong, I am not Maya by any means. She is still a character. She's still quite different from me. I would not act the way she's acted in quite a lot of situations. But somehow, like, I think I do wish I was a wee bit more like her. I think I just love Maya because she's kind of dumb sometimes. <laughs> I think that's what I really like about Maya. And that's the thing, I kind of noticed myself. I always tend to write characters that are relatively intelligent. And I just kind of got bored of it. I was like, what happens if I, if I make a character that is just kind of stupid? And I'm not saying that Maya is stupid, but she's a bit dense, right? She's a bit dense, a bit obtuse sometimes. Even when she's facing something head on, she will still deny it. She will still go and bury her head in the sand. And I very much appreciate that. <laughs> Maya for me was so fun to write because she is still quite different from me. And yeah, as I said, she's just one of those, I don't know, she's just one of those characters that I really had a lot of fun writing her. And the fact that she kind of, Maya just kind of says stuff. And I very much appreciate people that just say stuff because I don't. 
I'm also quite, I'm quite shy. I'm very introverted and I'm very quiet. And I, I do appreciate people that are not like that. So it was really fun to write a character that would just say stuff. You know, she didn't care. Ah, the corruption arc. So the, the, yeah, the main thing, I got concerned when I started hearing that go, like hearing that phrase go around. And I think I kind of deceived everyone about it. So yeah, I saw a few people mention that Maya's on this corruption arc and I was sitting there going, oh no, I think I might have gone a wee bit too far in the opposite direction. (laughs) So Maya's corruption arc was never really a corruption arc. And it's probably my fault. It's Sorry, it's not probably my fault. It's definitely my fault for maybe not pacing it well enough. It depends on if you think that Maya was always fated to beat fate or whether she literally broke fate and went down a different path, i.e. like she made her own path. So yes, I'm not going to tell you which one because honestly, I kind of don't know myself. And this is the problem with fate. I'm going to go back to, I'm going to do, I have a wee bit of a sidestep here. So the problem about writing fate into stories is that fate is a very rigid concept. And so in a world that has fate, you know, does anybody really have a choice? So yes, essentially it depends on if you believe that Maya was always fated to be a madam and she broke her fate, which is essentially what I'm implying in the story, but I've thought a lot more about it and I I don't know where I fall. So yes, one, Maya has either literally beaten her fate. You know, she was intended on being a madam, but through some luck or chance or just sheer force of will, she's stopped that. She has changed her fate to be completely something else. Or she was never intended to be a madam in the first place. She was always born with the fate that she would end the madams and replace them. I prefer the second one, but I kind of set up the first one. But as I said, it doesn't matter, right? There's no right answer here because fate is a bitch. (laughs) The concept of fate and destiny is an absolute bitch. And I will never, ever write another story with it again. We'll circle back to the corruption arc, the reported corruption arc. So my logic, or at least my justification for this corruption arc, was that Maya could never replace both of the madams by being one of their apprentices. Because the whole purpose of the madams, their existence, was to balance each other out. But what happens when there's no madams and something has to replace them? Maya was Madame Norna's apprentice, which essentially she was the morally upright one. You know, she was the the good side, if you can call it that. But she couldn't become the proprietor that she is now, or she couldn't replace the madams by being the apprentice of one of them. You know, she had to incorporate both of them, which is why she started to take on more of Madame Honora's qualities as the story went on, and as and, and as she got closer to that proprietor title or she got closer to her goal. I think I've explained that. I'm going I'm to say I've explained that fine. <laughs> so Maya could never have balanced it out essentially if she had only been one. So that's why she had to become more morally questionable. I'm going to say that as well. She went from being morally upright to morally grey. There's my interpretation of it. No idea what anybody else thought of it, but there's my justification for leading you down the garden path with regards to her corruption arc. Please don't come for me with your pitchforks. (laughs) And now we come on to the topic that everyone's been so interested in. (laughs) 
Maya's sexuality. I have confirmed it on Twitter, and I think on Reddit as well, that Maya is aromantic asexual. If you don't know what that term is, don't worry, you're not alone, majority of people don't. If you are aromantic asexual, you feel little to no sexual or romantic attraction for people. That is the general definition of it. The main reason that Maya is Aeroace is because I myself am Aeroace. <laughs> Probably the most personal thing you're going to get to know about me. I... Ugh, there was a few re- This is going to be really difficult to get out. There's a few reasons that I made Maya Aeroace. And the main one is obviously because I am myself. The second one was that I really wanted some representation. So yeah, come with me down memory lane whilst I tell you one of the most personal things that you will probably ever know about me. So I didn't figure out that I was Aeroace until I was in my like mid to late 20s. I spent the entirety of my life before that assuming that I was straight. And I believed the whole, oh, you just haven't found the right person yet bullshit. Yes, I'm bitter about that. (laughs) And it was because there was just no education on that kind of thing when I was younger. So when I was in school, it was, you were gay or you're straight, and that was it. There was nothing in between, there was nothing else. So I wasn't attracted to girls, so I must be attracted to boys, obviously. That was, (laughs) that's how it works, right? (laughs) So I didn't figure it out until I was in my mid to late 20s. I never had a crush on anyone. I never had romantic feelings for anyone. I have never been on a date. I have never, yeah, I've never been romantically involved with anyone. I have never met someone and thought, "Mm, yeah, let's jump into bed together. That sounds great. (laughs) I don't get it. I've, I've never had, I've never experienced those things. And I am now touching 30. And so by the time I was getting into my late 20s and Everyone was, you know, going on dates, they were having relationships, they were getting married, they were having children. And I wasn't doing any of those things. And I didn't want to do any of those things. I was like, oh, that's fine, you know, I'm I'm just a late bloomer. <laughs> anything, anything but the truth. If you don't know what the word is, if you don't know there's a word or a label for your experience, then how how do you explain it? And so, as I said, I just thought that, as I said, anything, any other explanation apart from what it actually was, I'm like, oh, I'm just a late bloomer, I've just not met the right person yet, all that kind of shite. I'm just busy. Because obviously I was getting my master's, I was doing my PhD as well, I was getting work experience, you know, there was always something that was more important. There was always something that was higher up on the priority list. And obviously, especially when you go into academia... The, the, the main excuse for when you go into academia still single is that, oh, you know, you're a career person. You, you prefer your career over anything else, which is not true. <laughs> you can both have a career and also have relationships. <laughs> There's not a one or the other thing here. So I believed all of this. I just, in any excuse apart from what it actually was, because I didn't know there was a word. I've been very lucky in that I have never found myself in an uncomfortable situation where I've kind of forced myself into doing something that I don't want to do. I've always known that I do not like 
romantic stuff. I've always known that it was had made me uncomfortable. I always knew that the thought of sex made me uncomfortable. And so I never got into that situation. But I have heard plenty of other ace people and aero people in the community who have put themselves into those situations. Because we're told, oh, you'll just know what to do when the time comes. Well, what if you don't? <laughs> Nobody ever thinks that there are people that don't know what to do when the time comes. Sorry, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. There's my story. I did not have the education. I did not have the tools to figure out that I was Aerowace until I was in my mid to late 20s. I'd say probably edging into late 20s because as I said, I'm touching 30 now. And when I did kind of figure it out, when I did realise that I was ace and then I afterwards I realised I was Aero as well, you know, looking around for representation, I think it's a human thing to kind of look around, especially in media, for representation. That's why it's so important because it reflects your own experiences. It makes you feel less alone. And there's just very little of it. There's tons of romance. <laughs> there's tons of unnecessary romantic subplots. There are very few characters who are even happy being single or are even confirmed to be aromantic asexual. And it's only in the last maybe like three or four years that that has started becoming more of a conversation. I'm not talking about podcasting. Fiction podcasting seems to be a wee... I say nest, but that's not the right word. <laughs> nest is an awful word. Fiction podcasting seems to be a really good congregation of LGBTQ plus people. Like the representation in fiction podcasting for that community is is great. And personally speaking, I am aware that there are some gatekeeping problems. Oh, problems, yeah, in the LGBT plus community, in that there is a subgroup of the LGBT plus community that denies that people who are ace or aero are part of that community. So apparently the A in LGBTQIA stands for ally <laughs> and not asexual. <laughs> so yeah, great. Straight people are allowed in the community, but we're not. <laughs> Better in a society, I am aware that there's some gatekeeping going on between the LGBT plus community and aero ace people or not aerowaste people, even asexual people or aromantic people, like there there's a whole thing. So I'm not entirely sure that I can claim to be a part of the LGBTQ plus community, given there seems to be some dissent. <laughs> but fiction podcasting is the exception to the rule. And obviously fiction podcasting does tend to be more indie, which is probably why it's more representative. But if you look at mainstream media, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Disney Plus, etc., they have massive issues with diversity with regards to LGBT plus people. And people who are aromantic asexual are no exception, or even people who are either or. Yes, so there, I'm not going to ramble on about it because that's why I've had to re-record this. There is a lack of good aromantic asexual representation in media. And it was important to me to help fix that. I can't fix it. I'm not that big of a creator. But it was important to me to at least have something out there, to have a character out there that was aromantic asexual, that was not a miserable person, that was not an unfeeling person or an emotionless person or a Sheldon Cooper or a Sherlock Holmes. It was important to me to have a character that was neither of those tropes, that was a real person with real feelings, but who also did not experience romantic or sexual attraction. It was important to me. That's why she is Aero Ace. The other reason 
that she's Aerois is because I can't write romance. I have told you why. I have never experienced it. I have never been on a date. I've never had a crush. I've never fallen in love with someone. I've never wanted to do all of those things. And the whole concept of romance and that kind of thing is just so alien to me that I literally can't write it believably. I have tried. When I thought I was straight, I did used to write romance because it's everywhere. Romance is absolutely everywhere. (laughs) And it was everywhere for me. And so most of the stories that I have written up until now have had some kind of pointless romantic subplot in them. The romance that I used to write was not believable. It didn't make sense. There was no chemistry in inverted commas. Even if I'd wanted Maya and Reed to be romantically involved, you would have been disappointed because it wouldn't have made any sense. (laughs) Believe me when I tell you this. I've tried to write plenty of romantic couples and not one single one of them is believable. And so I didn't even try with this. Not to mention, it's just really predictable, right? (laughs) Anyway, that's besides the point, right? There you go. I do apologise about the personal stuff, but I just, it was, yeah. So that's why Maya is Aerois. In conclusion, (laughs) in summary, after this massive rant, one, Maya is Aerois because I wanted some representation. I wanted some decent representation for the Aerois community. And two, because I'm also Aerois myself, I don't understand romance. I don't understand how to write it. I don't understand how it works. And although I do have a good imagination, that unfortunately is my limitation. That That's one of my limitations for my imagination. I genuinely can't imagine it. I can't understand it. I don't understand how you go from being friends or even meeting each other to, I don't know, being romantically involved. What What are the steps between those two things? I don't understand. And obviously that brings me nicely on to Maya and Reed's relationship. So I don't really need to, I don't think I really need to go into detail about why they're not romantically involved considering I have given you the reason why. But I do have genuine questions, which I know sounds really weird. I created these characters, but I'm asking my audience. Because I don't understand romance and stuff like that, I don't quite understand how people have suggested or shipped Maya and Reed together. What have I done or what have I written that would make you think that there was a romantic possibility to that relationship? And it's proven to me how blurred the lines can be between friendship and romantic relationships. And the line was never all that clear to me in the first place. So there's a quote that usually goes around the ace community on Reddit. And it's a tweet by someone, can't remember their name. And it essentially says that not all chemistry has to be romantic chemistry. I think we're all conditioned to assume that main male and female characters will end up together at the end of the story because most places you look, that's what happens. What's the difference between a friendship and a romance? Is it just the physical stuff? And these are genuine questions. And these are genuine questions that I've heard other ace people also ask. That rant over, my my stupidity over. I also find it quite interesting that no one's ever mentioned a possible romance between Finn and Maya. Is it because he's had a previous relationship with the madam? Or is it the age gap? Because obviously he's a few hundred years old and Maya's like, what, 20, 21? Technically, she ends up with Finn. Because it's just the two of them in the shop at the end. (laughs) 
<laughs> I am obviously joking. By my laugh, if you didn't understand, I am I'm obviously joking. But it did baffle me a wee bit why people were shipping Reed and Maya, but not Finn and Maya. And again, this is a genuine question. Please email or like leave me a message, a comment somewhere. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand why poor Finn got like thrown to the floor. Like he's not good enough for Maya. Reed's good enough, but Finn's not. I don't quite understand. Right, so my theory is that maybe I didn't write Finn as well as I wrote Reed. Maybe his character wasn't as rounded out. Is it because Finn has a wee bit of a dodgy past? You know, he was a wee bit of a prick back in the past? I don't understand. I genuinely don't. Right, second character, Madame Norna, aka Isabel. Yes, I have told you her name in episode 17. I had to look that up. It is episode 17. (laughs) I'm kind of disappointed with the madam. I kind of think I did her dirty. She's not nearly as fleshed out as I'd have liked her to be and I think that's because I never went into this podcast with a clear idea of who she was. Just the idea of a madam. Every time I sat down to plan a block there'd always be another character who was not fleshed out and she kind of got left behind. Maybe that's not such a bad thing that she's not as fleshed out because Madame Norna has always been a symbol to Maya of a future that she never wanted and of a legacy that stretches you know, far beyond the both of them. And I like to think that the current Norna is like a symbol of all of them, all of the previous ones. And perhaps that's why she's always been distant and difficult to flesh out and pin down. I'm talking like I didn't write this podcast, but Madame Norna proved to be the most difficult character to write out of all of them. So yeah, she was born in the 16th century at some point, and so she is about 500 years old. So I don't think I ever actually have stated this anywhere, but Madams usually last about 500 years. That was what I kind of went into it with. There's not an exact date, but it's around about the 500 years mark that The Apprentice will start to show up. Uh, so Reed, yes, we've already mentioned Reed, but he's got his own little segment. So Reed is very similar to what he originally was. Uh, grumpy, brash, quick to temper. I always imagined Reed coming from a big family, you know, lots of cousins. And I wanted to make it clear in episode 48, The Other World, that there was a big sense of community in the creature world where he comes from and a lot of mistrust of humans and the madams alike. So madams are held in reverence, but because Maya's an apprentice, she doesn't quite get that same treatment from Reed when he arrives. So yeah, I don't think I ever actually went into detail about the trouble Reed was in when he arrived at the shop in that ep- that first episode he was in. And that's mainly because I never actually decided. <laughs> so yeah, here's a spoiler alert for my writing, which I probably should have mentioned before. I'm a very lazy writer. Uh, so anything that seems a bit vague or not mentioned at all is because I haven't thought about it at the time of writing. <laughs> Reed was in a relatively bad place when he first came to the shop asking for help and over the series has improved himself. I think Reed may have been looking for something stable in his life and the shop became that anchor and his relationships with the people in it that allowed him to become a happier, more content person that he is by the end. Ah, Finn. Oh god, I was really nervous about the wyvern thing. So Finn in the original stories was a dragon but I just couldn't bring myself to say that out loud, so I changed it to something that's pretty much the same, but slightly different. 
don't ask me what my issue with dragons are. I just think they've been hijacked by high fantasy and people can't think about dragons without one, thinking about Game of Thrones and two, thinking about the typical like fairy tale dragon slayer thing. It's definitely just my prejudice, uh, but I just think dragons are a bit cringe in this context of urban fantasy. I meant to do more with the madam and Finn's relationship, but there was just so much else going on. And again, as someone who doesn't have any experience of those kind of relationships, I didn't want to put my foot in it and be insensitive given that Finn had obviously cheated on the madam. And from what I learn about that topic is very contentious. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not saying that I agree with cheating. God, I can't believe I have to say that. Just in case anybody takes my words out of context. Cheating is never okay. For me, sorry, that's my opinion. Cheating is is not okay. There are better ways of handling a situation than doing that. But again, that's just my opinion. And again, I do realise that cheating is a very contentious topic amongst people who have romantic relationships and stuff. So I was really scared about doing something that would offend someone or hurt or like, you know, hurt someone or trigger someone. So I left it alone. I, I told you what happened and that was it. I didn't go into detail because I just felt like I wasn't qualified enough to go into detail about it. I like them as friends anyway, but I would say that. (laughs) I like them as friends anyway, and I think the romantic relationship wouldn't have been particularly healthy anyway when it was going on. So Kronos, (laughs) maybe I should have started with him, since he's everyone's favourite character. I love the sass on Kronos. I'm not going to stand here and say that he's not partially inspired by Salem from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. So I'm myself a very sarcastic person and I think I used both Maya and Kronos to get my like episodic dose of sarcasm and sass out. (laughs) Kronos was having none of anybody's shit and I think we can all appreciate that. I also originally meant to make Kronos genderless but because I'm an idiot I made him masculine instead or at least I used the pronoun he. Uh, This turned out to be a bit of a blessing because writing both fate and death, who are genderless themselves, uh, using they can get a bit confusing when there's multiple characters, especially multiple characters that are genderless. Um, So it was a bit easier to actually write Kronos as a he, because at least you knew who I was talking about. But canonically, Kronos is actually the same as fate and death, in that he's not really a he. He's a they. I just thought I'd put that out there. (laughs) So Anora. Oh, I love Honora. I really, I got fond of her. Like, I really started becoming quite fond of her. I can't help it. As I said, I stated earlier, like, I love morally grey or morally corrupt characters. I think they're just so much fun to develop and write. Again, I'm hoping that's not a reflection of myself. (laughs) That sounds quite bad. I think it's partly the reason why I had Maya go down a bit of a darker path or have a darker side to her because it is fun to write. It made sense, cannot. It made sense to me as well, like plot wise or narrative wise, but it was really fun to do as well. I'm, I said earlier, I'm really sick of morally upright heroes. I think they're really dull, personally speaking. And let's not kid ourselves, the majority of our favourite characters in a lot of franchises is the villain because they're a lot more interesting. <laughs> I never wrote an origin story for Anora. Again, that lazy writing habit of mine. It just never seemed relevant and it never came up either. I didn't 
even write one for Narna, technically, so Anora had absolutely no chance. Anora also fell victim to that lack of development. She's a bit more fleshed out than Narna, but not by much. And again, the same reasoning that I used earlier, she's more of a representation of the title than an individual character. So yeah, difficult. I I found the madams particularly difficult to flesh out because there was just so much else going on and so many other characters that I, yeah, I just, I just, yeah, didn't use my time wisely, let's face it that way. So, death and fate. I have grouped them together. The concept I used in this podcast has definitely been used before, you know, seeing gods or higher powers or something like that in a form that's not human. I know it's more fashionable recently to have gods in media, in fiction media at least, be more human-esque. The Sandman, obviously my more recent kind of obsession. Uh, Lucifer, in any fr- in any franchise you want, he's been in hundreds. Even God, Supernatural in particular, I think is the one that's had God more recently. I think I said this in the last Q&A that Supernatural was essentially like one of the biggest influences on my creative process of my ideas and stuff so most of the things I'm going to mention are going to be like supernatural so yeah Lucifer and God are, are in, both in supernatural and obviously they're played by actors so they are personified uh, so yeah most gods and powerful beings look the hu- look human in media because obviously it's cheaper to hire an actor than it is to animate something or to get CGI uh, so what's the opposite of that making them look like anything else <laughs> I actually used the same concept in the McElwraith statements with the Overseers, who were essentially Grim Reapers. The Overseer that I wrote that story about in the McElwraith statements looked like someone the ghost knew in life, or it was maybe a movie star, I can't actually remember what it was now. They looked different to each individual. I didn't really realise that I had copied that concept until from from myself obviously I self plagiarized which you're allowed to do which is fine uh, someone asked me why I picked an owl for fate or essentially why Maya sees fate as an owl and I either have no idea or I can't remember <laughs> probably both there has to have been some reason that I chose an owl but I genuinely can't remember the thought process that I had when I was deciding My current thought process, which is possibly quite similar to the thought process that I used before, was that fate is something old and can possibly also be considered wise, as it has a really wide view of things that have happened and things that are going to happen. And an owl is a commonly used symbol for wisdom or intelligence, at least it was when I was growing up. I'm aware my reasoning would be the same as Maya's, since obviously Maya's the one that sees fate as an owl. Regarding how death looked, I think because death is more represented in mainstream media these days, everyone has an image of death. And I jumped at the chance to put in one of my favourite pieces of Scottish folklore into that role. The bodach, uh, which I explained at the end of that episode, is probably my favourite piece of folklore from Scotland. I think it's so fascinating that there are so many harbingers of doom in our myths and stories, because the Bodach isn't the only one. Um, I think more people will be familiar with the Banshee. Scotland and Ireland both share the concept of the Banshee, and that concept is like it's a harbinger of something bad. And there's quite a few of them in Scottish folklore, the Bodach, the Banshee, and there's a few more as well. And I just find it really 
fascinating that there's just so many of them. I don't know why why one didn't wasn't enough. <laughs> one Scotland decided that one of those things wasn't enough and we needed to have about five. That's the character and the story rant over. Now we can get on to questions. So what I have done is because a lot of people asked the same questions. What I'm going to do is address that specific area of the, that the question was asked rather than the specific question itself. And then I will get on to the more specific questions that I did not cover in the next however long I'm going to ramble for. Ugh, so the first one, the by far the most commonly asked question was about the novel. <laughs> the novel is finished. It was finished before I even started podcasting. And it's just been sitting there in a folder, not doing anything until last year when I got it out and edited it and then started sending it to literary agents. What I describe it as is a gender-swapped Scottish Beauty and the Beast because it was mainly inspired by Beauty and the Beast. I am very proud of it personally. I I love the story. I think it's great. (laughs) I would say that because I wrote it. (laughs) But it is definitely one of my favourite pieces of work so far and that's why I think it deserves to be shared with more people and preferably to make me some money. (laughs) She says naively. (laughs) Anyway, so if it ever gets published, my name and anonymity. So I always intended to keep Ghostly Thistle anonymous and I never intended to publish under Ghostly Thistle. That was never the intention. I read quite a few years ago now that it's not really fashionable anymore in the publishing industry to use a pen name. That It may have changed since I last read about that, but I think it had something to do with like building your audience around your name as an author. It's essentially like building your brand, right? It's like what influencers do now. They build their brand around their name and around the personality that they have attached to that name. And I think it's quite similar with them um, with authors. I never really thought too hard about publishing because it was always like a distant pipe dream. But now that I'm actually pursuing it, I'm not really sure how I want to handle putting my name to my creative work. So the only thing I have ever published with my name on it, my actual birth name on it, is my research papers. So obviously because I used to work in academia, I had to publish papers because publish or perish, as they say in academia. Not quite as bad as that, but it is kind of like that. So I have quite a few published papers or articles that have my name on it. Just seeing my name on something that's not a journal article just feels really weird to me. (laughs) I don't know why. I think I've just associated my name with my career. And so to see it on a novel would just be really jarring. And I also don't have a very catchy name. It's good for academia because... It's quite clunky. <laughs> it doesn't really roll off the tongue. And it's just its just not a very, I say nice name. It's not a bad name. It's a very normal name. It's just a very run-of-the-mill, average Joe name. I feel like you need a bit more of a remember... It's not a very memorable name. And I think that's the problem. I think you kind of need a memorable name if you're doing kind of creative stuff. That's just my opinion, though. So my intention, or at least how I'd like things to turn out is that I can publish under a pen name and then add that pen name to the podcasts. Or at least tell everyone that Ghostly Thistle and that pen name are the same person. What I bet is going to end up happening is that I'm going to have to out myself. (laughs) I'm going to have to put my name, my actual birth name, 
onto both, onto this podcast and onto the novel if it ever gets published. But for now, I am still ghostly thistle and it's probably going to be quite a few years before anybody ever knows any differently. I will, of course, keep everyone informed on anything that I do going forward because you're my my cult. <laughs> my cult! Oh my god, it's not a cult, don't call it that. Um, Jesus Christ, please don't. Please nobody call it a cult. Let's not be having that, thanks. I'm good. Yes, you're my cult. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I am not charismatic enough to be a cult leader, so we can't possibly be a cult. <laughs> anyway, I will, Jesus, I will of course keep everybody updated about anything I do going forwards because you are my audience. You are essentially the reason that I'm going to give the publishers that they should publish me. <laughs> Look, I already have fans. That's essentially what you're for. <laughs> I'm joking. Yes, you are essentially a justification of why people should publish me. So thank you very much. <laughs> you're helping me in more ways than you can possibly know. But yes, you're my audience. I have spent years cultivating you. Is that the right word? Growing you? That doesn't sound right either. Anyway, I spent years gathering you. <laughs> and I would like to keep you and get, get you some more friends too, so you can all hang out. <laughs> Preferably on the subreddit. <laughs> Somebody asked about the distribution to the US in particular, because I think the majority of my audience are from America. So I think what happens is that this is why you get a literary agent and not just go through a publisher because publishers are country specific. So the literary agent essentially is the one that sends your work out to publishers. And from what I understand, they will send it out to like international publishers. So they'll send it out to an American publisher. Hopefully that's all how, that'll be how it works. <laughs> I'm sure that's how it works. I, I'm relatively certain. So other work, question mark. <laughs> I've had... I've had quite a few emails and messages over the last, oh, it'd be about a year now, about the other bit of work that I had online. So I wrote, um, it's like a trilogy, but only one was available, called The Grains of Magic, that I wrote back in my early 20s. And I had put it on Wattpad and Inkit, which are very popular platforms for creative writing. And so I told everybody that listened to the podcast about these, <laughs> this bit of work. And I, I just said, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, I don't, I don't really know if that's up to my current standard or not. And I didn't really have the time to go and check. So I just took it down. It is on my like, I say bucket list, but it is on my like never ending list of things to do of I'm probably going to go and edit it again. It's been edited quite a few times since I wrote it. Yeah, because I'm constantly evolving. I'll go and edit it again and I'll probably put it up at some point later. But yeah, I, I, I was just a bit afraid that it wasn't up to my current standard at the minute and I didn't want people to lose faith in me, <laughs> to stop listening to me. So yes, it's not available yet. A few people have also messaged me. There seems to be another author that has published something called A Grain of Magic. It's not the same thing. So yeah, I, I, felt, I felt really bad. There's a few people that were like, oh, your name's Lucinda. I was like, no, it's not. I think that that piece of work is by a Lucinda Silverling. She has a really cool name, uh, which is not mine. I do not have a name as cool as that. <laughs> so no, that's not my work. 
my work is the grains of magic. I can completely understand. I might have to change that now, considering what's considering that author has published something similar. Well, similar titled. So somebody asked about um, other podcasts or crossover projects with other podcasters. I'm very open to collaborating with other fiction podcasters. I think I've said this before. Hence why I haven't called this like a full retirement. The audio drama community has given me so much over the last few years and I'm always willing to give back if it's appropriate. If that be advice to people who are also interested in fiction podcasting, if that's my voice, my writing... I'm going to say writing expertise, but there's nothing expert about my writing. If you want a chaotic mess, I'm joking. If other creators wish to collaborate or want to borrow my voice, then please feel free to get in touch. I'm always willing to help out other fiction podcasters. So final session? Final section for this session. (laughs) Someone asked on Reddit about my writing process and I think a few other people have also asked me about it. This is going to disappoint a lot of people because it's really not that interesting. I think I've alluded to it earlier about how I have Word documents, how I date my things now, how I write everything down. I have kind of given you some breadcrumbs about my writing process. My actual writing process, like writing, writing, sitting down in front of a Word document to type something out, I tend to listen to background music but nothing that has lyrics because they kind of tend to be distracting. I have been on a a lo-fi or a chill hip-hop journey the last few years. (laughs) I have this playlist on YouTube full of these compilations. I also listen to game soundtracks. Legend of Zelda's probably got the most videos on YouTube. There's a lot of like Legend of Zelda OST soundtracks but obviously that's because Legend of Zelda is just so old. It's been going on for so long that there's a lot of music attached to it. Um, I've got the Horizon series, so Horizon, Zero Dawn and Forbidden West are my favourite games of all time. (laughs) So I listen to either background music, I think it's called ambient music. So a few people have created playlists or videos of ambient music for the Horizon series and also the OST or the, the actual soundtrack associated with those games. And obviously Hollow Knight if you don't know, everybody knows Hollow Knight, right? It's not, it's, it used to be, it was released as an indie title, but it has become so popular or so well known over the last like five years. It's a platformer and it is difficult as hell. <laughs> but yes, it's got an, a, an amazing soundtrack. The, um, the composer or the music person for that game was just, oh, it's beautiful. It's so lovely and some of them are really relaxing. So yeah, game soundtracks or lo-fi chill hip hop soundtracks. Sometimes I just like ambient noise as well. I will stick one of these videos on, depends how I'm feeling really, and open a Word document and bullet point the hell out of it. As I said earlier, I have some of these documents I have for stories are like 30 pages long. That is unusual to get to that kind of stage. They're on average maybe about 10. It really depends on how developed the idea is. So a story usually starts with a character for me or a conflict or an event and then it just kind of rolls from there. The characters get fleshed out. The plot points are more like trial and error. I'll test a few out, see if I like them and if I don't then I'll see what I can change until it's good. And by trial and error I mean 
I'll say, right, what if that happens in that scenario? And then I'll like play it out. It's kind of like simulations in a computer. That's kind of this, what I can th- compare it to at the minute. You, you tell a simulation program that this, you know, these are the parameters. What is the outcome if these are the parameters? And it'll tell you the outcome. That's essentially what I do for stories. If this happens to this character in this situation, what's the outcome? Okay, I don't like that outcome. What can we change? So that's what I mean by trial and error. It's essentially just I run simulations in my head. And if I don't like how it plays out or if I can't think about how it plays out, because sometimes my imagination kind of does bump up against things then I will go back and I'll rerun it. So yeah, it's essentially like running multiple simulations to see what works. I'll also do something similar to like a mind map sometimes. So how does everything connect? Does it make sense when it does connect? Is it interesting? Is it predictable? Because my biggest fear as a writer is being predictable. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But I do like being unpredictable. It's, it's one of my more fun things in life. <laughs> It's kind of difficult for me to explain my writing process and how I come up with ideas because they just come into my head. They, you know, they they just appear in my head with very... As as I've said before, you go back and you listen to the inspirations for some of these stories and they are so mundane. An empty coffee jar, a rogue email. It really doesn't take a lot sometimes (laughs) to inspire me for a story. And I have very little control over it, which I think is why I find it quite difficult to to explain to people how to write a story or how you write a story, because I genuinely don't think I really know myself, even though I've written quite a few of them. And I think this is why I've never liked quantifying creative writing. I've never liked these, oh, 10 steps of how to write a horror story or 12 steps for the perfect character. I just don't think that good creative writing can be quantified by that kind of thing or can be quantified in general. Two writers can write the same thing, but one will work and the other won't. And there's very rarely a like a solid explanation for that. For me, there's never been a, I must get a thousand words written today, or I must do this, or I must do that. And I think it's because my career, my, my actual paid <laughs> job, is so like that, it's so rigid, there's so many different hoops that you have to jump through, that what I really like about creative writing is the spontaneity and the fact that there there are no rules, (laughs) which is kind of true. Creative writing is so flexible, there aren't really any rules to it. So yeah, I think, I don't know if, have I said, I don't know if I'm going to keep it in or not. I do apologise, this has been an absolute nightmare to edit. So my career area is in STEM. So I did a lot of sciences when I was in school. I went on to study a kind of science when I was at university and that is my career. Everything's very rigid in science. There are hoops to jump through, there are instructions to follow, there are ways that things are done because that's how they have to be done in order to get solid evidence for your point, right? Everything has to, everything has a process in science and it has to be done that way or you're wasting your time. And that's great, right? I've always been a kind of person that I like having an answer. I, I, I preferred the sciences to the arts when I was in school. I've always been like that. I like having an answer. I like having structure. But I also like having an outlet that doesn't have a structure, if that makes any sense. I feel like I, I need to be unstructured sometimes. And creative writing is that for me. It's an escape from that structure 
that I have chosen for my career. It's a creative outlet where I can just do what I like and there are no consequences. <laughs> Having said all that, there is method to my madness. So as much as my stories might be quite spontaneous, the ideas for them are very spontaneous, I still do have a method in order to actually get the idea onto paper and then to further get it to a state where it is either a novel or a short story or etc etc. So I will plot out the entire story or at least the main plot points that I want to hit in the story before I start writing anything really. I'm If I'm feeling particularly ambitious I will start writing the story only having a few plot points and then I kind of figure it out from there. But usually I don't really like doing that because you risk things not tying together very well. Yeah, when you start writing things without planning them, that's, you're essentially setting yourself up for plot holes, in my opinion. A good example, I suppose, in The Antique Shop is Kronos. I said earlier in the session, I'm really glad that I left Kronos's backstory really vague because if I hadn't, I would have had to change the ending. And yes, That was a complete accident, that was just a complete fluke, (laughs) but it did work out for me in the end. It kind of helps to, as I said, by the time I was writing the Kronos episode, I roughly knew where I wanted to end up, but Kronos was never part of that ending. I don't think I even said that earlier either. Kronos was never actually kind of really meant to be part of the ending. So I knew what the ending was. I knew that I needed death to beat fate. I knew that the madams and Maya couldn't do it by themselves. They needed death because death is essentially the only other being in this world that is equally as powerful to fate. So I knew that Maya needed to get death on side. But what is death's motivation for helping Maya? Why would something as powerful as that, why would something as important as that help one single mortal? Makes no sense. It needs, characters need motivation. In my opinion. (laughs) I love how I keep saying that. In my opinion. This is not a blueprint for how you plot stories, but this is my thought process. Characters need motivation. That's what makes them seem real because people have motivation. Everything we do has a motivation. So characters need to be the same in order to be more human, essentially, to be more real to people. They need to act like real people and real people have motivations. What is death motivation for helping one person beat fate? Maya needed an incentive for death to help. Okay, so what's an incentive? How do you get death to help? You have something at once. You offer it something that it wants. But what can death possibly want? That's how I arrived at Kronos. And I thought it'd be really good to tie in Kronos to the bigger plot. Kronos was like a secondary character. He was kind of in the same vein as Finn and Reed. A secondary character who the plot happened to that didn't really drive the plot. Right, so Maya pretty much drives the plot sometimes, but most of the time she doesn't. But Finn and Reed, the plot happens to them most of the time, right? They don't really have a lot of agency, which maybe made a character flaw in both of them. Kronos was kind of the same. Kronos was just there being sassy. And yes, he was entertaining, but he didn't really have a great deal of influence on the general story. So when I started thinking about what the hook was for death, what the incentive that Maya would offer death to help was... I was like, well, there has to be a person. There has to be something that death wants or someone that death wants. And who could that be? Oh, a person that they love, that they lost. Who could that be? Oh, Kronos is right there. (laughs) Let's put him into that spot. So that's literally, that is how careless it was. Of I knew where I was going to go. 
I had rough plot points that I wanted the ending to be, but they weren't fleshed out until quite a lot later. And yeah, I suppose you could say that Kronos was shoehorned into that ending, but it worked out for the best. (laughs) It worked out, so it's fine, don't come for me. So that's why I'm kind of really reluctant to stand here and be like, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do the other, because I am in no way, shape or form qualified to tell you how to write a story. Because I don't really believe that there is a blueprint for writing stories. And maybe that's just me. (laughs) That's the, the beauty about creativity, is that it really just depends on the person creating it, or how the audience takes it. And I'm not saying that you can't improve. I'm not saying that you can I don't want to, this is the thing, this is the really what I hate. I don't want to make it seem as though I'm sounding like, well, I was just born with this ability, I, you know, it's so tough luck. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I do not believe that in the slightest. If I believed that, I would never have gotten this far in my career. I'm not a naturally gifted person and I definitely was not naturally gifted in science. I had to work my arse off to get where I am today. So believe me, I am definitely not saying that, oh, well, if you're not a naturally born genius, then you're fucked. I'm obviously not saying that. And I would never want anybody to think that is true because it's not. With stories, you can improve your storytelling, but there is no, there's no set of instructions on how to do it. There's no set of instructions on how to write a good story. You just have to keep writing, keep writing and keep making mistakes. And then eventually you'll develop your skills. I think that's really all it is. <laughs> There's not a like, if you if you do these things, then you'll have an instant number one bestseller. That's not how it works. That's how nothing works. Life doesn't work like that. There is no instruction manual. We're not born. <laughs> None of us are born and handed this friggin' instruction manual on how to be successful in life. <laughs> I wish we were, but we're not. There's no right answer. I think that's what the beauty of art is, is that there's no correct answer. You just have to keep doing it. My parents, or at least my dad, here we go, here's another personal thing about me. My dad had a saying when I was growing up, because I struggled, as I said, I was not naturally gifted at school. I was a pretty, I was above average, but I was never A's, right? I was never a straight A student. I was B's. I lived in the B mark. (laughs) Sometimes I'd get an A if I was feeling particularly good. But my dad used to say, whenever I was struggling with stuff, you know, the more mud you throw at a wall, the more will stick. And I think that's just, I think it's a very British term, that. And it's true. You know, the, the more you try, the better you get. The more mistakes you make, the more you learn. You become a good writer by writing. You become a good storyteller by telling stories. That's all the advice I have to give you. My process is very personal to me and it works for me, but it probably isn't going to work for a lot of other people. I'm going to stop ranting now. There's my thoughts on storytelling and the writing process. And there's my very strange writing process. (laughs) Probably makes no sense. Don't worry, we're finally at the end of this horrific episode. (laughs) I can only apologise for not being able to get sentences out. I have no idea what my problem is when I stand in front of this microphone and try and talk without a script. I'm not this bad in real life, I swear. I'm not great at conversation in real life, but I am not this bad. (laughs) I don't know what it is. I genuinely can only apologise for never being able to stay on track. The plan going forwards is that I have not gotten onto the other Q&A session. 
So what I'm either going to do is it will either be released tomorrow or, or it will be released next week. And it's going to be short. I'm hoping it's going to be shorter, good lord. <laughs> I will split it up because as as much as people love my accent, <laughs> I get frustrated at hearing my own ranting. I, 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 it really irritates me because I can never stay on topic long enough and it's really frustrating. So I'm not going to subject you to that for more than an hour. <laughs> this session obviously has been ranting and the next session will just be the Q&A. So specific questions that I haven't covered in this session. So look out for that in your feeds. Thank you so much for listening <laughs> and I will see you for the next one.